Tonight's show is being brought to you by the 2022 Ozarks Home and Outdoor Recreation Expo. Bendetti Optics and you, our listeners. I didn't do it on purpose, but we look a lot alike. Dark hair, dark eyes, and I didn't have a beard back then. I just kept stubble. And she leans over and she's like, are you Steve from Ghost Hunters? And I'd sit there and there was this moment of decision. And I just looked her right in the eyes and I was like, yes, yes, I am. What is up, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell stories of all of our wanderings and our wonderings. I am happy to be back in the studio tonight, y'all. It's been two long weeks, and it's been two weeks too long. I hope someday in the future we will get back to that weekly drop. That would be... I would prefer that a whole lot, and from what I'm hearing from you guys, a whole lot of you would as well. And, uh, you know, bear with me. In the future, we definitely want to get back there. We definitely want to get back there. That is the best way, in my humble opinion. Um, But life just dictates what it will, and things are what they are, as they say. So, tonight, let's talk about a little bit of housekeeping. We will keep it short and sweet tonight. Just a reminder, this is the last time I get to talk to you guys about the Ozarks Home and Outdoor Recreation Expo. So this is just a reminder, it's coming up in, well, as you're listening to this, three short days. Starting on Friday, 21st through the 23rd, I'll be there all weekend at all hours that the show is open. I hope you guys get out there and support the show, support the podcast, come by and say hi. I would love to get to talk to some of you guys in person. That, to me, I mean, I don't know. That's the penultimate. I would just absolutely love that. But it is upon us. Do not forget, I've got a ton of sweet Bendetti Optics swag to give away. Some t-shirts, some sunglasses, a crap ton of stickers, and I've also got some awesome chest rigs from our buddy, Robert Solomon, over at Solomon Dry Goods. So that's coming up the end of this week. Um, We're going to get pretty close to just right into it tonight, guys. Today is going to be a marathon. I'm recording two episodes back to back. I don't really have a choice. That's just how life is treating me right now. But you know what? I chose this and I'm enjoying it. I'm just a little bit overloaded and stressed. But I'm going to be sitting here recording for probably, I'm going to guess, the next three hours or longer because this episode is kind of a lead up to next week's episode. I say next week, the Halloween episode. Or the Samhain episode, however you choose to look at it. The spooky season episode for 2022. Um, and the next one, I suspect it's going to get long. I suspect we're going to be talking about that one for a while. Because, yeah, you'll find out as we get there. Um, but I did get out today for a short drive this morning. Um, as I need to do before recording so I can kind of get my head in the right headspace. Y'all, you have no idea how hard it can be to com- compartmentalize all of these things like over here on the one hand to have a mountain of schoolwork and then also the post graduate planning stuff that I'm already having to get into and looking at internships and looking at uh, volunteer um, opportunities to start getting some of the experience I need with the parks and the historic sites and things like that. And then on here, on the other hand, I have all my stuff with my daughter, which is of course of primary importance above all of this. 
Um, and then over here, oh yeah, there's that thing you do five days a week, which is a job to the tune of like 55 hours a week. And then, oh, hey, yeah, do you remember that podcast, Justin? Yeah. Didn't you used to produce a podcast? Yeah, I did. I just did it like two weeks ago. Well, we got to get busy, but it can be hard to compartmentalize all that. Your brain's always going all these different places. So to record, I usually have to get out and go for a little drive with the ideas for the episode or as in today episodes that I'm going to be recording in my head so that, you know, like I said, it's, there's not a better way to put it than just getting in the right brain space. Um, but while I was doing that, what I realized we had a cold front blow through last night, a wondrous set of little supercell thunderstorms that were fun to watch. Um, and brought some cool air behind it. And y'all, it is amazing outside right now in the River Valley in Arkansas. It is, it's fall weather is upon us. There is a, not a chill in the air, but a cool in the air. That's about the best we can hope for that this time of year. Um, in this part of the state and this part of the South, but you can smell it. You know that smell? Y'all, you can smell fall right now. And that's got me in the mood for sure. So anyway, I hope wherever you are, I hope fall is starting to happen and you guys are starting to get some sweet, sweet rain like we got last night and today um, that is so desperately freaking needed, y'all. Like here, we haven't seen anything more than one or two little bitty, bitty sprinkles in the last probably three months. Like it's... I mean, the Buffalo River right now is like scary low. It's like, it's like record low, actually record low. I saw some pictures on the Facebook just the other day of the Mississippi River, which you don't really necessarily think of for recreational purposes, but just for context, um, I saw some pictures of the Mississippi River down in Southwest, Southeast, Southeast Arkansas. Let me get my directions correct here. Um, and it's like, whoa. Like, wow, like there's like things starting to emerge from the river that haven't been seen in, in decades and decades. It's crazy. We got some crazy, scary drought stuff going on. So we need all this rain and we need it to feel like a little bit of fall. But it's got me in the fall mood, y'all, which is great because we are in October and that's what your next two episodes are going to be. If you guys were around last year, you probably remember the spooky season where I dropped five episodes in five weeks. Y'all, that was an endeavor. We ain't doing that again this year. Matter of fact, I thought I was only going to pop out one for Halloween. But after I started pulling together all of my material and what I wanted to talk about and the concept started to come together, I was like, yo, you've got two episodes here and that's great because the more content, the better. So we're going to crank one out tonight to just kind of lube y'all up, get y'all all warmed up and ready for um, a week and a half from now. The next drop is not going to come on the normal Tuesday as you've come to expect it. I will drop it Friday night at the beginning of the Halloween weekend for you guys to enjoy throughout your spooky weekend. You can see if you're watching on the YouTube channel, we've got, got the mood going on here in the studio. i got some candles going on back here behind me. Y'all don't worry. I can see them out of my peripheral vision. If the fish on the wall there catches on fire, you see right here. Smokey the Bear. Some of y'all probably haven't even noticed him. He's peeking out from behind some of my sound dampeners. I got Smokey back there watching out for me. He may not be able to protect me from, say, the spirits of the undead if we start talking about them tonight, but he's definitely, we don't have to worry about any forest fires up here in the studio. So let's get on with it. We got the mood set 
at least here in the studio, and I am excited to talk about tonight's stuff. Um, The background for this, if you're around last year, you already know, but I'll just a little short disclaimer, or not disclaimer, but a little short contextual background. Some 12 years ago or so now, 13, when was 2009? Anyway, we had a TV show that we concocted and produced and aired over in Eastern Europe um, called On the Fringe. Started out as a whole different deal. Hidden histories. We talked about that recently, I think. But we went into the onto the fringe thing, and the whole idea behind it was just legend tripping. That's what they call it now is legend tripping. Um, and we were kind of doing it before it was really a thing. At least out there in the Zeitgeist, I'm sure people were doing it for time immemorial, um, in some version or another. But what we went after was because I'm like I've always been a folklorist. I've always been an amateur historian and a folklorist. And so we we went out to go and explore and make episodes, a docu-style TV show of going to places where all of these great legends and folklores around the United States are for our pilot season, right? That's what we went out to look for. And it was going to just be like a road trip documentary. Like, I mean, honestly, y'all, it just dawned on me in this second. It was kind of wayward stories before wayward stories. The same concept was there. Get people show them all the interesting stuff out there to go do and then encourage them to go live their life. Go explore it for yourself. That's interesting, and I'm going to have to process that because that's probably going to tell me something more about the things that drive me than I even realized. That's really cool. Anyway, back on track. So On the Fringe started out as legend tripping, and of course there's going to be legends such as Crybaby Bridges and Spook Lights and, and all of these different things, right? But at that time, Ghost Hunters was huge. And the network that we were producing content for, who was shipping it over to Europe, they kept pushing us more and more and more ghosty stuff, ghosty stuff. And we kind of went down that rabbit hole because when you're at the point we were where you're trying to break into an industry and you literally just got a tiny step up the ladder, you do what you're told. You're kind of like, <laughs> you're kind of like Silence of the Lambs. Buffalo Bob's up there looking down at you going, it puts the lotion on its skin. It does what it's told. So we did what we were told, right? Um, and it did. And as that progressed, you know, some creepy stuff happened. We actually ran into things I didn't expect to run into. Those things are going to really populate next week's episode. We're going to save the really creepy stuff, you know, for next week. This week, we're going to focus on all the other episodes um, and some other stories as well. We're like, Nothing happened. Some of what were, well, to be fair, don't let me mischaracterize. The stories I'm going to tell from my on the fringe days of production are going to be the ones where nothing happened for us, but we went to really crazy cool areas. So it'll be like the legend tripping aspect. Give you guys ideas of some road trips that maybe you could take and go out and have a good time and a fun weekend and learn about some local legends and lore and a little more about this mythology of the, of basically the United States. So much of it, it delves into native folklores and legends and stories. And it, and it's also the, the Irish immigrants, the Scottish immigrants, all these things can chill together into what, you know, like they've always said about America, it's a big melting pot. You get all these great stories. And these were the things we were investigating. So if you listen in tonight, you're going to hear some stories that came from on the fringe and ones where nothing necessarily happened for us but about the trip itself and just giving you some great ideas of where to go. But on top of that, I'm going to throw in some others to help fill out the episode of just other legendary things around the United States um, that are great places where you are absolutely able to go and explore for yourself. 
But that's kind of the layout of tonight. We're going to talk about some places and things and that you can go and see and do. And we're going to start out, let's get into it. We're going to start out with a couple of different spook light stories that come from other parts of the country, um, from where I am in Arkansas, that we did not investigate. These are not on the fringe um, stories, but these are stories. They're really, really good ones nonetheless. And they were definitely on our short list for On the Fringe. Had we made it to a second season, had our funds not run out, had we not all ended up basically bankrupt to continue producing content, as it turns out, you don't get paid a lot in royalties for European public access TV shows. Um, but had we been able to continue, these would have been on the list or these were on the list. Um, and they are absolutely ubiquitous when you get into the world of the urban legend, so to speak. First and foremost, let's go to Texas and let's talk about the Marfa lights in Texas. The Marfa lights have been featured on TV shows. They have been seen across the centuries, um, quite literally, by God, thousands, if not maybe tens of thousands of people at this point. I'm going to be reading um, most of this stuff tonight, and then I will be elaborating upon it as necessary, but I want to be able to give you guys um, proper contextual background. The Marfa lights, also known as the Marfa ghost lights or the Marfa mystery light, have been observed near U.S. Route 67 on Mitchell Flat, east of Marfa, Texas, in the United States. They have gained fame as onlookers have attributed them to paranormal phenomena such as ghosts, UFOs, or will-o'-the-wisp. Scientific research suggests that most, if not all, are atmospheric reflections of automobile headlights and campfires. The Marfa lights of West Texas have been called many names over the years, such as ghost lights, weird lights, mystery lights, or the Chinati lights. The favorite place from which to view the lights is a widened shoulder on Highway 90 about nine miles east of Marfa. The lights are most often reported as distant spots of brightness, distinguishable from ranch lights and automobile headlights on Highway 67 between Marfa and Presidio to the south, primarily by their aberrant movements or aberrant movements. They define the left margin of the viewing area as being aligned along the Big Bend Telephone Company Tower is viewed from MLVC, that would be the viewing center, and the right margin is Chinati Peak as viewed from the MLVC. Referring to the Marfa lights, you might just see mysterious orbs of light suddenly appear above the desert foliage. These balls of light may remain stationary as they pulse on and off with varying intensity from dim to almost blinding brilliance. Then again... These ghostly lights may dart across the desert or perform splits and mergers. Light colors are usually yellow-orange, but other hues including green, blue, and red are also seen. Marfa mystery lights usually fly above desert vegetation but below background mesas. Just a quick little bit of history on it. The first historical record of the Marfa lights was in 1883 when a young cowhand, Robert Reed Ellison, saw a flickering light while he was driving cattle through Paisano Pass and wondered if it was the campfire of Apache Indians. Other settlers told him they often saw the lights, but that when they investigated, they found no ashes or other evidence of a campsite. Joe and Ann Humphreys next reported seeing the lights in 1885. Both stories appeared in Cecilia Thompson's book, History of Marfa, Marfa in Presidio County, Texas, 1535-1946, to which was published in 1985. So there you go, guys. 
This is the story of the Marfalites. If you go online, which I, I urge all of you to do about many of the stories that we're going to talk about tonight, go online, read about it for yourself, and think about taking you a little road trip there. Marfa has embraced this. I'm given to understand Marfa is a really, really cool little town. Um, I was doing some research on it. I totally still intend to go there. I absolutely do someday. Um, and Texas is a great state to go explore. But get down there. Set yourself up a road trip. Go and do some research. Find out a little bit more about it and where to go. They have a viewing center that has been built so that you can safely go out there and watch the lights. Again, the Marfa lights have been around since at least 1885, um, according to a first-hand account that was passed down through the generations, which would seem to fly in the face of all of the skeptics. You know, the skeptics are always like, oh, that's just car lights coming down this road. And there were students from a couple of different universities in the state of Texas that I believe, being fair, were able to skeptically debunk at least a portion of the Marfa lights as cars coming down one of those U.S. highways, and they were able to test that hypothesis by taking their own car over there. Um, but I don't think it explains all of them because, because the first one was 1885 and the second in 1888. And when that was first recorded in 1885, they told him, yo, yeah, we've been seeing that forever. We don't know what it is. We, we just, you know, don't ask, don't tell, baby. We don't ask questions. We just ignore them and go on about our business. But I don't think that they can all be explained away. And it very much likely does have to do with um, some atmospheric effects based on on air heating. As you know, they're up there in, in kind of the high desert. And there probably is something to do with that. But the question remains, where do the lights come from? Before U.S. Highway 67, or which I think is 67, was built. It is a fascinating question, but definitely one worth investigating, if you ask me at least. Um, next, let's move on to another spook light that we did not get to go to, but again, is still on my list of things to explore. I've told you guys before, I love all things creepy. I love all things, you know, quote unquote, paranormal or the unknown. Let's put it that way. I like the mysterious and the unknown. You guys know me. I'm a nerd at heart. I'm a folklorist. I'm a historian at heart. I care about the stories. I care about culture. That's the stuff I love. And all of these stories, these are what compromise these stories. So many of them. And, you know, they're just, well, as you guys are going to find out next week, I got to find out firsthand, quite rudely, I might add, that there's something to things that we might not can explain out there. I found that out for myself. So I no longer pretend to be and so arrogant a skeptic to say, oh, yes, there's no such thing, Muffy. <laughs> yeah, that ain't me no more. Because, like, I run up against some stuff that'll probably make your hair stand on end. But you got to tune in next week for that. However, let's stay with tonight. For now, let's get into the Brown Mountain Lights. Brown Mountain is going on in North Carolina and has been, much like the Martha Light, Marfa Lights, for quite some time. The Brown Mountain Lights are a series of ghost lights reported sporadically for many years near Brown Mountain in North Carolina. The lights have been seen at several locations about 60 to 70 miles northeast of Asheville in Burke County. 
Brown Mountain is located in the Pisgah National Forest. Some of the earliest reports of ghost lights came from Cherokee and Catawba Indians, settlers, and Civil War soldiers. Thousands have witnessed the spectacle, which is ongoing to this day. The lights have been investigated three times by the United States government and countless times by private groups and often studied by students at Appalachian University. The lights were even featured in an episode of The X-Files in 1999. You can look for the lights at several easy-to-find viewing points in the Linville Gorge area of the mountains of North Carolina. The lights are most often reported as small, star-like dots of light of a brightness comparable to stars. Motion of the lights has varied by reports from slow movements to almost firework-type action. Wiseman's View is an overlook with a spectacular daytime view of Linville Gorge. Visit after dark. Be careful since there are no lights to find your way down the short trail to the overlook. The view to the east looking over Table Rock and Hawksbill Mountains. Brown Mountain is beyond that ridge, a low peak in the distance. The lights have been seen along the ridge as well as below the ridge down in the gorge. Sometimes lights can be viewed from atop Table Rock. NC Highway 181 has a Brown Mountain overlook about 12 miles north of Morganton. And the Blue Ridge Parkway has a marked viewing site at the Lost Cove Overlook, located at milepost 310, six miles north of Linville Flats. The view is a brown mountain itself, but vegetation has encroached upon this view. Some say that fall, especially after a rain, is the best time to see them. But the brown mountain lights are rarely seen any time of year. So, this one is a light spectacle that is a little more elusive, apparently. Says they are rare to see. However, many have seen them over the years. I could not find a, just a quick glance as I was trying to put all this together um, this morning. What the legend, like what the legends are. Most of these are associated with a legend. You know, there's always a folklore, a mythology that springs up around them about what, you know, the cause of the lights is. As you will see as we progress through this episode and then also next week's episode. Um... But I couldn't find the actual origins of the legend. But I know a lot of people like to attribute tribute those to like UFO type of stuff. I ain't even know about all that. But that is one that you can go and see for yourself. Again, there are overlooks. There are things that you can go and actually do in North Carolina other than this. So it would be a great legend trip for you guys. You guys want to come up with a road trip for the weekend and you're out there on the East Coast somewhere. You might just head down to North Carolina and check out the Brown Mountain Lights. So let's come back to my state of Arkansas and let's talk about two more spook lights that go on here in my state. And both of these were ones that did were on our short list, but did not make the cut because we had a full season of really good adventures. Um, and this stuff was all on the short list for if we got renewed or again, didn't run out of money for a second season. But let's talk about the Crossit light. Outside of Crossit in Ashley County, where the old railroad tracks once lay, an unexplained light has become a local legend. It has reportedly been seen consistently since the early 1900s by multitudes of people. The light is typically seen floating two to three feet above the ground, but also is said to move into the treetops and sometimes from side to side. The light reportedly disappears as one walks toward it and then reappears the same distance away, so that one can never get a close look at it. The Crossit light's color reportedly ranges from yellow or orange to blue and green. The Crossit light is one of many similar phenomena, commonly known as spook lights in the South. 
There are other notable spook lights. And like these spook lights, the Crosset light, according to legend, is the ghostly lantern of a railroad worker who lost his head in an accident in the early 1900s and who walks the tracks to find it. There seems to be many similar stories explaining this phenomena, but this seems to be the most common. There are also stories, not widely credited, that the light is related to extraterrestrials. Yeah, this is very, very, very true. Most of the spook lights, I say most, there's a huge preponderance of the spook lights that are that are folklore out there and uh, urban legend. And so many of them have the same exact story. A brakeman fell off the caboose and the train ran over his neck and he's headless and he's out there with his old lantern, you know, not sweeping, but just kind of scouring along the right of way of the railroad tracks looking for his lost head. Um, that's a fun story. Creepy enough, but a fun story. There is quite a lot of legend about the Crosset Light in Arkansas. This is something I'd heard about my entire life. The Crosset Light and then also the Garden Light. And we're going to talk about it now. I just queued it up next. I forgot all but all about the Garden Light until I went to start recording and putting together this outline. And the Crosset Light and the Garden Light are so, so, so very similar. I felt like that was the play. I should totally just talk about both of them. The Garden Light is pretty close to Little Rock, as a matter of fact. So the Garden Light... Um, south of Little Rock. Super, super cool story. And so cool, in fact, that it actually made an episode of Unsolved Mysteries way back in the day. The Garden Light is a mysterious floating light above the railroad tracks near Garden in Clark County. It was first sighted during the 1930s, and many theories and stories exist to explain the light, including one which connects it to the 1931 murder of William McLean, a railroad worker. The popular legend drew national attention in December 1994 when NBC's Unsolved Mysteries television show documented the phenomenon. Garden is located approximately 85 miles south of Little Rock on Interstate 30 and just east of Interstate of the interstate on Highway 67. The light appears along a stretch of railroad tracks outside of the town. Some people believe the light originates from the reflections of the headlights off of cars off of Interstate 30. However, the site is more than two miles from the highway and people began seeing the light several decades before the interstate was constructed in the 1970s. Others believe that swamp gas creates the light, although that kind of light appears or this light appears in all kinds of weather. A somewhat popular story is that a railroad worker was working outside of town one night when he accidentally fell into the path of the train and was killed. Since his head was severed from his body, many locals say that the light is the lantern of his ghost that he uses while he looks for his head. Still others believe that pressures on the quartz crystal underneath Garden caused them to let off electricity and produce light. That would be, cause, be called a, piezo, a piezoelectric phenomenon. I'm actually a little bit familiar with that because a spook light we're going to talk about next week has a very similar story associated with it. But the garden light, again, it's a great piece of folklore. It's a great piece of folklore. And it's so interesting because this is the reason you want to go do these kinds of trips is you get to learn about history, guys. You get to learn about um, the the folklore and the people who came before you. Like there, To me, there's so much value in that. Like, I know a lot of you guys don't get it. It sounds silly to you guys. But to me, it's like the stories we pass down. And this is in any culture. Native traditions are beautiful. 
I love Native traditions and their history and their stories. I don't want to call them folklore. Something we all need to remember, too, by the way. You start calling Native American beliefs, when you say they're myths and their mythology and their folklore, that's not super accurate because that's actually what they believe. And what they believe is every bit as legitimate as what you believe. You know what they call Christianity? Mythology and folklore, which actually, like, what is it, 65% of the world, basically? Anywhere other than Western countries calls it folklore. Just keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Two-thirds of the rest of the world view what we grew up with as being silly superstition. The world's a big place. There's room for everyone. That's all I'm saying. But there's so much in the stories. Where we come from. What we believe in. Who we were. There's so much to be learned from that. And then going to the area is what's so wonderful. That's what's so cool about it. Because you actually go out and you get to experience it. Maybe you don't get to see it. Maybe you don't see what it is that's being purported there. But you get to go to an area that has gotten so much attention over the years. And so countless generations of people before you have come on the same quote-unquote pilgrimage to see the same thing and try to experience the same thing. And there's a certain amount of connectivity. There's a certain amount of connectedness to who we were and other people that have come before us that all have that adventurous and inquisitive spirit. And to me, that's that's what the power of all of these stories is. And it goes so much further than that. But again, I'm trying to compartmentalize today and my brain can only be so creative for so long before I'll start just absolutely blabbering. And none of my words will make sense. So anyway, give you guys a little bit of a background on that. So hopefully you guys will get out and explore some of our great spook lights here in Arkansas. We got some more coming up. Um, we're not going to talk about them in this episode, but we got a couple of good ones that are going to come up in the next episode. But for tonight, what we're going to be looking at next is, it looks like we're going to be talking about, ooh, ooh, some more fun ones. But we are at the break. We are at the break. So there's a little cliffhanger, a little teaser for you to bring you back after after our ad break. Um, so we're going to get to that, and I'll catch you guys on the other side. What is up, all of you wayward souls? I want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor, Bendetti Optics, a brand based right here in the good old US of A, Portland, Oregon, to be exact. And I bought my first pair of Bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that I got online and ordered a couple of more pair. And when I did, there was a small shipping snafu, an order fulfillment snafu, and I got on the phone, gave them a call, and guess what? I get a call back from who? One of the big men themselves, right there in Portland from the top of the chain, have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship we have. They more than made right, the little snafu that occurred, and I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people, and they are trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably knew in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name, not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Bendetti Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them. Send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses 
should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash Optics, And that I highly suggest whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you will ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around through the sponsor break. Let's get right back into it. Let's talk about, I'm going to reel off a few quick ones real um, here real quick that I had intended to do originally um, in the first half of the episode because I, I thought those would come out a little bit shorter. But you know me, I can make anything way longer. Um, but I still want to get them out there because um, there's some really great trips you can take. One of those would be Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Any of you guys over there again on the East Coast, if you're going out to, say, North Carolina and you're going to check out the Brown Mountain Lights, maybe you could swing around and go through West Virginia. I mean, it's just like right next door, right? <laughs> but Point Pleasant. Many of you may have heard that name before because of the Mothman Prophecies, the film starring Richard Gere way back in the day. What many of you may not know is that that story was actually not so loosely based on a true story as written by an actual journal journalist named um, John Kill. Keel. Look him up. You might consider reading his books. Y'all, it'll trip you out. Like, you'll think he's crazy. Most of y'all probably think he's crazy. But he was a for real real journalist, legitimate journalist that got drawn into a story, and it culminated in the Silver Bridge Collapse, I believe, in 1967 in Pleasant, West Virginia. And, um, y'all, it's a creepy story. There was some weird stuff going on out there in the year that led up to that collapse, and that was a big deal. That was, the Silver Bridge collapse was a huge deal. A lot of people died, and it happened on Christmas. Not a pretty thing. Not a pretty thing. But Point Pleasant is a place you can legend trip to, and you can still go. To my knowledge, the last I was able to read or see anything, you can still explore some of the TNT areas, what they call it, because it was a, it was a, I believe, U.S. military munitions factory and storage area that where they, you know, World War II era, um that it had been abandoned. And anyway, a lot of weird stuff goes on out there. It's all I'm saying. And you can go there and check it out to this day. And you can even go down to the river and you can check out where the silver bridge was. It's, you know, that would be a really cool legend trip, something to look into. What else have we got here? Oh yeah. Back here in Arkansas, the Crescent hotel, y'all Crescent hotel. I'm trying to really hard right now. I'm trying to, my name's in the hat for a, a paid travel block, uh, yeah, a paid travel writing gig for a weekend up there, you know, room, everything included. I'm in the short list and I was buying very hard for it. I'm still waiting to hear back. Um, the Crescent Hotel in Eureka. Number one, you're going to Eureka Springs, which is one of the coolest places on this stinking planet. Eureka Springs is freaking amazing. The Crescent Hotel was built in 1886, I believe. Yeah, the 86 Crescent Hotel. Y'all. Y'all, you want to talk about history and gorgeous and just an amazing area up in our Ozarks. It's just this beautiful little historic town tucked down in the mountains, the Ozarks, down in the hollers. Oh my God, it's gorgeous. But the Crescent Hotel is quite haunted, so they say, as is the Basin Park Hotel. Um, But you should consider going there. Some Something of interest, my man, Rob C., 
I'm not going to say his last name, keep him anonymous, but my man, Rob C up there in Missouri, who's been in great close touch with me here for the last, you know, a couple of months. And I am so glad Rob that you are listening and I enjoy every time you send me a message. I know I'm super busy a lot of the time and, and maybe my return messages might be a little short or maybe they take two days to come back to you, but I promise I'm so happy you're writing and I try to write back as soon as I can and as thoroughly as I can. I'm just freaking swamped right now, but he, he's bringing some great stuff up that I'm going to be working into the show in the future. But one of them is these, he sent me a link literally just last night or the night before about an archeological excavation that happened based on a master gardener who was digging in the grounds behind the Crescent Hotel and came across a large stash of jars that appeared to have human remains in them. Why was this gardener tipped off that they may have human remains in them? Because there is a story. Back in 1937, this dude by the last name Baker, and I had his first name a minute ago, but we just, he's Baker, and he had a, he was a, he was a charlatan. And he was one of those guys, like, he had the cure for cancer. And he opened the Cancer Curable Hospital in the Crescent Hotel. He had bought it from the previous owners and converted it into a Cancer Curable Hospital, quote-unquote, from 1937 to 39. And apparently this dude was dark and creepy, okay? And, and he was definitely a charlatan, getting paid money to inject all these weird chemicals and stuff into people. And it, it, God, it had to be excruciating. It's a horrible story. Look it up if you want to look into it. But anyway, it was long rumored that he kept body parts and certain things in human anatomy in jars in his office. And that had never been proven until this master gardener was rooting around doing what master gardeners do and uncovered a bottle dump. And it was all of these jars. And these jars have been recovered archaeologically. Like, what would you say? A site survey, I think, is what they did. But these jars got turned over to pathologists, forensic pathologists. And they have been examined for veracity. Y'all, you want to you read some interesting, creepy stuff for your Halloween season? Check that out. Anyway... The, the Crescent Hotel is supposedly, purportedly, a very haunted place. And Eureka Springs, y'all, haunted or not, you will never go wrong chilling in Eureka Springs. So there, th- you are welcome. You're welcome. Go to Eureka Springs and have yourself a ghost trip. Eureka Springs is amazing. And check out the Crescent or even the Basin Park Hotel. Um, Beyond the Crescent Hotel, what else do we have here? What else do we have here? Let's talk about, let's get into, let's start getting into some of the trips that we took, that we did as On the Fringe. That, you know, maybe, maybe nothing necessarily happened, but they were awesome, interesting trips, historical, nonetheless, and have awesome folklore stories. And that's that to me is part of the beauty. When you get into the folklore and you start seeing it from across the country, you start seeing how beliefs and thought processes and and stories how they how they kind of work their way across the continent with the expansion of the european you know call it what you will imperialist or settlers there was a mix of both by the way huh, let's just be fair about that yes what europeans did in that day was a really bad deal it was a terrible deal some of it was legitimate genocide some of it was completely unintentional like all the diseases they brought and you know a good part of it was just being jerks like hey we have a 
what do you call it? It's ethnocentric. We have a superior way of life. Yeah, it was an ugly deal, but so many of them, just remember, so many of the settlers had no interest in that. So many of the settlers were literally just trying to find a better life for their family and did not view it as perhaps the people in the higher up of the chain viewed it. And they got along just fine with the natives. Many of them had great relationships. I am a product of many of those relationships being part Choctaw, part Cherokee, part freaking Irish, part freaking Scottish. I've got a lot of Scottish in me, by the way. Um, a whole lot, which is kind of fascinating. I really want to go toss cabers now. Like that's going to happen. That's going to happen at some point. I'm going to try to toss a caber and I'm going to dislocate my shoulders, but whatever. But <laughs> anyway, so many of the settlers, they weren't, they weren't conquerors. They weren't trying to kill the hell out of people. They were innocently because they didn't understand societal conventions and all that. They didn't understand. And nobody was looking at things that way. So just keep that in mind. when We talk about that kind of stuff because it will come up because it's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. But you see the stories and the legends and the folklore as they work their way across the country with the westward expansion and also how they start to blend together with native mythologies and folklores and stories. There's so much. There's so much. There's so much interesting stuff and in all that, y'all. I can't help it. I can't help it. But anyway, we are now going to go down the road of creepy cryptids. Okay. Let me tell you about the Falk monster. F-O-U-K-E. Falk. From the namesake of Falk, Arkansas. Far down in the southwestern portion of Arkansas, deep, deep in the Washita Mountains, is a little town of Falk that boasts a story about a Bigfoot encounter. Though it's a little bit different than Bigfoot. But however... I digress. Let me just let the Encyclopedia of Arkansas tell you the story. It will put it better than I can. Falk in Miller County is a small town in southwest Arkansas that attracted attention in the early 1970s when a resident of Texarkana in Miller County reported being attacked by a mysterious creature there. A reporter for the Texarkana Gazette wrote an article about the events, and from that small publication a legend was born. Falk and its monster became famous and were featured in a 1973 movie. In May 1971, Bobby Ford reported to the Falk constable that he was attacked at his house by a hairy creature that breathed heavily, had red eyes, and moved very fast. Ford said the man-like creature, which was about seven feet tall and three feet across at the chest, put its arm around his shoulder and grabbed him. Ford broke free from the creature and ran, reporting that he ran so fast he did not stop to open the front door, but barreled right through it. He was treated at a local hospital for minor scratches and shock. Ford said that be the being had been around his house for several days and that there were other eyewitnesses, including his brother and a hunting companion. Ford's wife, Elizabeth, claimed that she was asleep in the front room when she saw a hairy arm with claws coming in the window. She also saw the creature's red eyes. On the night of the attack, Ford claimed he and his hunting companion spotted the creature at the back of Ford's house with the aid of a flashlight. They shot at it and thought they saw it fall. The men started out toward it, but Bobby Ford ran back to the house when the, gro the group heard women screaming. Upon Ford's return to the house, he was attacked. The men shot at the creature several more times, but investigators never found any blood. The sheriff's department searched the area, and the only things officers found were a set of strange tracks and claw scratches on Ford's porch. Jim Powell, then a reporter for the Texarkana Gazette and the Texarkana Daily News, 
and Dave Hall, then director of Texarkana Radio, KTFS, went to Ford's place and found a terrified family moving out of the house it had owned for less than a week. Powell wrote an article that appeared in the newspaper outlining the family's alleged sighting and attack. The next day, both the Texarkana Gazette and the Texarkana Daily published the same follow-up story. It contained the first reference to the name Falk Monster. The Associated Press and United Press International, or the UPI Wire Services, transmitted the article back to newspapers across the nation. This was the basis for the legendary cult pop culture hit, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Anyway, notable things I want to say about that is that deputies did indeed find evidence of some weird footprints. This is law enforcement officers, y'all. Like, these are like deputized, legitimized people, right? Mama says they's bona fide. So they actually claim that they saw at least evidence of these deep scratches and some weird footprints. The deep scratches easily could be bear claws. I have seen bear scratching, you know, the, the, the indicators where a bear has scratched on a tree or a, a corral post. I've seen that with my eyes. Sure. Anything could probably, there probably was bear scratches if anything. Right. But weird footprints like bear have pretty standard footprints across the board. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. Very, very interesting. But if you're interested in going on a legend trip, you can sure enough go down Highway 71 South, straight out of Fort Smith, Arkansas. Or if you're anywhere else in the world, you can also access it and go and spend you a little bit of time down there because you can go camping right in the Washita National Forest. Anywhere in or around Falk would be good enough. That's the only place you really need to be. And you can also explore the town. It is a small, tiny town. We went and explored it, and we did not have a whole lot of luck talking to local residents. They weren't super excited to talk about it, to be honest with you. There are a few things there. And now, granted, 13 years ago. It's been 13 years. So who knows? They may have figured out what the rest of the world has figured out. Hey, there's tourism dollars. Tourism dollars put money in our pocket. They may be playing it up now for all I know. But 13 years ago, we we had a, it was an interesting experience 13 years ago. Let's just put it that way. We didn't come away with a lot of information, a lot of willing people willing to talk. We did a little investigation ourselves, but you know, how do you freaking try to find a Bigfoot monster? Like, I mean, there's guys that know how they got like Bigfoot sounds and do like all these things, you know, they, I think peanut butter. Oh, I think they try to track them with peanut butter. I don't know. But what are you going to do, right? You can only do so much investigating. And we came away empty-handed. However, it is quite a famous story. It is a great legend that falls into line with many, many, many others. I've always noticed that that one, to me, seems very similar to the Swamp Ape. Um, Down in, what is it, Florida? It's Florida, right? The Swamp Ape? But anyway, that is another part of American lore. Well, not just American lore. Y'all, I mean, you get around the world, you got Yeti, you got ab- the Abominable sm- Snowman, you got the the Ape Man, the Swamp Man, or the Swamp Ape, you got all these things, and they are around the country, around the world, and it's a very, very fascinating little subculture and sub, uh, kind of subcategory, subcompartment of the weird and the unexplained that there, man, you read some of the stories, firsthand accounts, and some of the people who signed affidavits and signed off on stuff like doctors, police officers, you know, people that 
it's kind of like in the modern day, the UFO sightings and everyone used to make fun of everyone that did that. Well, now they've got it all on like, you know, F-18 heads up displays and all this footage that the government's now having to address is like, yeah, yeah, we just don't know. Whatever. Like whenever a pilot, whenever a fighter pilot, a combat fighter pilot says, I saw some weird that I don't know what it was. There's more legitimacy to that. You know, there's something about that. But anyway, Falk, Arkansas, something to check out. And you can't go wrong because it's in the Arkansas Ozark or uh, Washita's baby. The Washita's are pretty stinking awesome in their own right. We've been talking about them off and on for the last two or three episodes. So anyway, Falk, Arkansas and the Falk monster should be on your trip list. Now, let's talk about something in Kansas known as Theorosa's Bridge. Theorosa's Bridge was one that came across our radar. And it was a, it's a crybaby bridge story of a sort. You know, everybody got a crybaby bridge story, right? Shoot, I remember those. When I was growing up in high school, we was always, everyone was always telling the crybaby bridge stories. Um, Every town, everywhere. And the more I traveled and the more we did and the more you go out and you see other parts, they all have a crybaby bridge story, which is so fascinating there feels like there should be something of an explanation for that. Like, where does that come from? It doesn't feel like it's just one thing that starts at one place and then spreads like wildfire across the country, though it very well could. Anthropologically speaking, that that's, that's plausible. But so many of them go so far back that they feel like they start almost kind of uh, simultaneously, like they almost have their own origins around the same time frames, you know? And that's a fascinating thought. However, something just dawned on me based on another story I'm going to tell next week, that might very well could be an explanation for it. I don't know. But let's talk about Theorosa's Bridge first. It is, I believe, north of Wichita, Kansas. We're about to find out. Yes, about 12 miles north of Wichita, Kansas, sits the small town of Valley Center. Now having a population of about 7,300 residents, the settlement was born in 1872 on the Little Arkansas River Banks. Located along the ever-important railroad, the town grew to include a post office, three stores, two blacksmith shops, a grain elevator, and several homes by the early 1880s. Though now a bedroom community to nearby Wichita, one of the biggest attractions in the quiet town is the haunted Theorosa's Bridge, also known as the 109th Street Bridge and the Crybaby Bridge. On an old county road three miles north of town on Meridian Street, these, uh, this old bridge spans Jester Creek at the intersection with 109th Street. Several legend about th- legends about this bridge's haunting are based on a baby drowned in the creek below. Today, the bridge is a simple concrete bridge that normally no one would pay any attention to except for the legends. The first legend tells of settlers passing through the area in the late 19th century when Indians attacked them, and a baby named Theorosa was kidnapped. Her grief-stricken mother was said to have left the wagon train to search for her missing daughter and reportedly continues to look today as her mournful cry can be heard calling out for her child. Another legend is that a skirmish between the cavalry and an Indian tribe living by the creek occurred about this time. In this version, an Indian woman is stabbed and her baby is dropped into the creek and drowned. Yet another version of the tale suggests that a woman named Theorosa was a young a young woman who had an Ill- illegitimate baby and she drowns it in Jester Creek to hide her shame. Later, she is overcome by guilt and she also drowns herself. 
And finally, one more version tells of an engaged woman who fell in love with another man and bore his child. Jealous with rage, her fiancé reportedly threw the baby over the bridge into the creek, and Theorosa jumped off the bridge to save her baby, but drowned instead. In any event, all those are just grotesque, aren't they? Sheesh. In any event, the bridge has been reported to have been haunted for years and years. Many have reported seeing floating balls of light, eerie shapes, and the apparition of a woman in the area around the bridge. Cars are said to mysteriously stall as they cross the bridge, or if they stop, they will feel the entire vehicle begin to shake. Others report cold breezes seemingly coming from nowhere and the sounds of mournful voices or the chilling cries of a baby. Yet others say that the weather is consistently different at the bridge than the rest of the area. Rumor has it that if you call out to Theorosa, telling her that you have her baby, she'll come out of the water and attack you. The original iron and wood bridge that first stood at Jester Creek for decades burned down in 1974 and was rebuilt, but then destroyed again by fire in 1976. Afterward, it was closed for 15 years. However, in 1991, the road was reopened and the current concrete bridge was built that continues to serve travelers across the creek. Theorosa's Bridge we went there. Nothing happened. Um, which it, I will say this. The one thing that it was reported supposedly happens at that bridge is that the weather is consistently different. We did note that. I distinctly remember that we all like got a chill chill. Like the temperature, the air temperature was significantly different than 50 feet away off the bridge, up the road. Like it was noticeable difference. It was definitely colder. That, however, being fair, and because I do believe in woo-woo things, but I also believe in being a skeptic of the woo-woo. I'm the, I'm the woo-woo skeptic. Maybe that'd be a whole nother podcast. I'm the woo-woo skeptic. Um, maybe I could like be buddies with the Yaya sisterhood or something. That sounds similar. But anyway, the weather was different, but it could be explained by like honestly it's over a creek y'all and it wasn't a very big deep creek either like that whole thing about her throwing herself in to drowners or getting thrown over and drowning i mean i guess if it was flooding sure but i mean like normal creek levels at that time we were there it doesn't look like it's got that much water in it but the weather could easily be like explained by the fact that it is a creek over a creek channel and you could easily get because of the water and because of the creek channel itself you could have wind currents i mean you never know like winds coming across the flat plains of kansas could funnel right down those tree lines that wrap around and come up a fence line or come up the creek line rather because there's always trees that line a creek you know because the con consistent water source it could just be a totally natural atmospheric condition however the weather is different there at least that was the one thing we noticed we did not find any evidence whatsoever of any of the other things that are claimed. But what I will say is this, again, one of the beauties of folklore and urban legends, usually there's a grain of truth in it. And most anthropologists will agree with that. Most historians will agree with that. They may sit there and say, oh no, there is no plausibility to this crazy, crazy story. However, it probably comes with a grain of truth. There's probably something that started this story. And in a lot of ways, that's how we preserve history, guys. That's how we preserved a lot of our history. I'm willing to bet there was some young woman named Theorosa, and either she or her baby died somewhere near the creek. 
that's probably some truth to that story, though it is undocumented. It's not in any historical record that has yet been found. There's probably a good chance that there is validity to maybe at least a grain of the truth of that story. And to me, I don't know, there's a certain mysteriousness. There's a certain mystique and a certain beauty about that. Like it's like a, a... it's like a mystery novel. It's like a peek back in time. Like, I wonder what is the true part of this? And, and it makes you think about the way things were in the day. And there's a beautiful link to our past and our history and those kinds of stories. But that is Theorosis Bridge, Wichita, Kansas. It's totally worth a visit for you guys because Wichita is a pretty cool little place. You know, Wichita, it's all right. Go check it out. It's a good place for a weekend trip. You know, you can put it on your, you can get you a bucket list of crybaby bridges to go visit and put Theorosa on the list because it is one of the more prominent and famous ones. We, we didn't run across anything. I'm not sure why it's so much more prominent and famous than a lot of others, but it always comes back in internet searches when you go looking through this stuff. So go check out Theorosa's Bridge. Next, let's come back down to my state of Arkansas and let's talk real quickly about... Pioneer Cemetery. Pioneer Cemetery. I talked to y'all last week about it or the week before, and I said we'd cover it more. Pioneer Cemetery is super cool. Pioneer Cemetery is super cool. What it is, it was a community. I I don't know that it even had a name, but it was a community on Rich Mountain on Talamina Scenic Drive. Of course, there was no Talamina Drive back then. This is in the early 1800s or in the 1860s, rather. We know exactly when it was. It was a group of settlers fleeing the ravages of the Civil War. And they just took off. They're like, we got to go somewhere. And they just kept going. And they found themselves on this ridge, on this really high ridge. You know, you're up over 2,000 feet on Ridge Mountain. It's one of the highest peaks in Arkansas. Not the, but one of. Um, And for whatever reason, as botanist Thomas Nuttall found so many 200 years ago, it's called Rich Mountain for a reason. Their soil is very rich. And they're like, yo, we can make a life here. So they set up this little community. And anyway, I'll let, I'll let the narrator here, which I guess I'm the narrator, but the writer here, tell the story. Pioneer Cemetery is all that remains of this community on Rich Mountain. It was established at the time of the Civil War. The community was compromised of several families looking to escape the ravages of war. Signage at the site provides some background on the area's history. There are a total of 23 graves in the cemetery, and while the number of those interred is certain, the identity of those occupants remains somewhat of a mystery. Only one of the 23 graves has a headstone. The rest are graves are marked with native rocks, which feature markings that are no longer legible. Signage at the cemetery lists the names of those believed to be buried there. The date of the first burial is another mystery. However, the identity of the graveyard's first occupant isn't as ambiguous. Many believe a young girl from the Wilkerson family was the first person to be buried at Pioneer Cemetery. Whether or not she was the first doesn't make her story any less tragic. According to the legend, the Wilkerson's were among the families who lived on Rich Mountain, and during one extremely cold winter night, the entire Wilkinson family, except for their teenage daughter, fell ill. And at one point, the daughter went out into the cold to fetch either firewood or water. There are a few versions of the story. And while out, she encountered a pack of wolves and was forced to take refuge by climbing a tree. Sadly, her frozen corpse was discovered the next day. That is the story of how that girl died. And just by the way, it is emblazoned. It is remembered there on Rich Mountain on a plaque. It's not a plaque, really, but on a, you know, interpretive signage tells you that story. 
And it's also listed on the state of Arkansas as I believe it's their tourism website. Um, so it is a legitimate story. However, it has a ghost story associated with it, as you might imagine. Over the years, various people have seen the ghost of the Wilkinson girl roaming about the cemetery, while others have reported strange lights in the trees surrounding Pioneer Cemetery. Um, we went. We did that investigation. It is freaking cold on top of that mountain, by the way. Um, no matter when you go, but I believe we went pretty late in the year. Yeah, we definitely did. It was super duper cold. Top of that mountain's always cold. But, y'all, it's a cool legend trip for you to take. And it's got, like, all the all the bona fides. Like, if you want all the good stuff, I mean, heck, right now, y'all, it is. It's October. Like, this, this, you should set it up for Halloween weekend. You guys, if you're close, you should come down and drive Talamina Scenic Drive. One of the most beautiful fall foliage drives you will ever encounter. And who knows, maybe the colors will still be pretty prime in two weeks when this happens. A week and a half, whatever, two weeks. Um, Right now, they're popping. So they may start to fade by then. I can't really control Mother Nature, but it is a gorgeous drive. I told you in last week's episode, I believe it was, I was talking about Talamina Drive. All of that still exists. But you can go right down to Pioneer Cemetery and you can take yourselves a little trip and go out there at night. And maybe sit around and maybe, maybe just see some weird lights floating through the woods. Or perhaps the little Wilkerson girl herself. We saw no such thing when on the fringe went. But we did get very, very cold. And again, with all these things, there's a certain amount of, uh, you really, you get a taste of what it was like then. We knew for a fact this girl died on a frigid winter night. And we were there on a frigid winter night wasn't snowing or anything we didn't have anything like that going on but you got to experience it you got to feel the cold on your skin man it cuts it cuts through your clothes you got exposed skin it hurts until it doesn't feel anymore you know what i mean then it's all numb you're up there looking for this girl that you know died okay and we were doing this again i, I didn't know how i felt about it at the time but we're up there doing it at the prodding of global broadcast company who was the one, you know, taking our media and pushing it out there to the rest of the world, particularly Europe. And they wanted it. They wanted ghost hunting. So we gave them ghost hunting and I didn't know how I felt about it. But what you figure out when you get up there, we're up there looking for this girl, trying to find out if there's any evidence of her disincarnate soul out there running around. And we find how cold it is. And then suddenly you're sitting there going, yo, this girl really died here. Somewhere on this mountain close by, this the, the, the community was very close. This is where they interred everyone. She is here. This is probably a taste of what the night was like that she died on. And then you put yourself in her shoes and you're like, can you imagine crawling up in a tree with wolves at the base? And you're freezing to death, but you literally can't step back down to the ground and go to the warmth and the safety of your home. Like, it makes it real. It makes the the hardships that the, the the settlers and our ancestors, many of these people are our ancestors. I wouldn't be surprised if she was in my bloodline. I've got a huge amount of blood that traces from down around the Rich Mountain area in southeast, uh, western Arkansas. Like, there's a chance, y'all. Y'all forget how that spider web works. When you start getting into bloodlines, you're literally related to like... <clears throat> everyone that was a pioneer forever ago because everyone's intermarried everyone all the way down through history. There's just a good a chance. It makes it real. It connects you to someone that lived 150 years ago. It connects you in a very real way 
just that we just happened to be there on the right night to experience conditions similar to what she may have, even if it wasn't as cold as her night, it gave you a taste of it. And that's, that's the beauty of going to the locations. That's the beauty of going to the places where these things occurred. If you're into interesting, creepy stuff, if you're into urban legends, that's why you go is to connect to the history and the stories and, and your own, your own history, because in so many ways we're all connected in those kinds of ways. Anyway, let's move on. It's time to start wrapping up tonight's show. So I have one more story for you tonight. I actually left two out. We're going to have to for time constraint reasons. Um, but that's okay. They were, they were, uh, what do you call that? They were, they were on the, uh, will call list just in case we needed them. I'm going to tell you now about the Levasi or Levasi, actually, the Levasi Spooklight, the legend of Bone Hill, just outside of Kansas City, Missouri. I could say Kansas, but it's not. It's actually on the Missouri side of the border. But Legend of Bone Hill, this the way this came to us was so interesting because we're all, you know, at that time, we've got this long list. We got a short list. We've got a list for when we make it and get famous and we can go all over the world. And then we got a list for like, what can we do, you know, next season if we get to do another season. But then we had the short, short list of we've got to make episodes this year. What is close to us regionally? What can we afford to get to on a thousand dollars an episode? Y'all that hey, I'm still proud of us. We cranked out freaking TV that shown in like, it was 17 countries. I'm pretty sure the number was 17 countries in um, Western Europe or Eastern Europe, whatever. Um, on $1,000 an episode, a bunch of rednecks from Potois and Hevener, Oklahoma, put together a little film company and actually put something on TV. You know, maybe we didn't make it, but I am still proud of what we did. Um, but here's another one that we did because it was regional, it was close, and it was just a shot up Interstate 49 to Kansas City. And this is just outside of Kansas City, and I'm, again, going to let the source tell the story for you. This one comes, actually, from Legends of America. The Legend of Bone Hill, Missouri. There are two legends that pertain to Bone Hill in Levasi, Missouri. And again, we called it Levasi until we got up there, and everyone was like, no, nah, it's Levasi. So, anyway... Lavassi, Missouri. One tells us the story behind the name of Bone Hill, which originated with native lore long before the town was ever established. Many years ago, the Indians would stampede the buffalo and slaughter them on this hill, leaving the bones to bleach in the sun. The first settlers arrived in the area, found arrowheads, flint scraping tools, and bleached buffalo bones in large quantities. Uh, narrators aside, let me say something here. I never noticed this before until now, and this just stood out to me like a sore thumb. Native Americans were not in the habit of leaving anything behind. They used the bones to turn into tools of multiple different kinds. Like, I'm not going to go off and get all down that road historically, anthropologically, whatever. I'm not going to do that to you for this episode. That doesn't sound right. If there was a bunch of buffalo bones on the side of a hill, you know what that does sound like? That sounds like Buffalo Bill Cody. That sounds like the people that went across this nation. And God, Kansas City, it's up there on the plains. And they just killed the hell out of all the buffalo, which is why they nearly went extinct. And they just left them there to rot. All they wanted was the hides. They didn't use the meat. They didn't use the bones. That sounds way the hell more like what actually happened here because this does not sound like Native Americans. They were incredibly resourceful. They used everything. They used up 
everything that was usable, especially it's definitely including bones that anyway, just stood out. Sorry. I just, I just wanted to put that in there. Um, anyway, around it says the first settlers arrived, they found arrowheads, flint scraping tools and bleached Buffalo bones in large quantities. The second legend revolves around a buried treasure and an unearthly light that appears upon the hill. Before the Civil War, a farming family came to the area along with their slaves and settled on the hill. Soon they had their slaves build a stone fence that completely surrounded their acreage. When border warfare was at its bitterest in 1862, and this is speaking of the Civil War, the farmer sold his acreage for gold and supposedly buried it somewhere along the stone wall. The family then moved away, promising their neighbors they were going to return in seven years. They were never seen in the vicinity again, but in the seventh year, in 1869, a mysterious light was said to have been seen hovering above Bone Hill near the wall. According to the legend, the light continues to appear every seven years. Some say it is the ghost of the farmer coming to claim his buried fortune. It's a very interesting story, and what's funny is it comes every seven years, right? Supposedly. Well, the year we were reading about it was 2009, and we were doing all this math, you know? We were putting together putting together the old think tank and figuring out the math, and it hit us like, yo, that's this year. It's supposed to come back this year. It felt like it was written in the stars. We were like, we were going to go find this light. It was meant to be. So we made our trip to Overland Park, Kansas. It was Kansas City, but we stayed in Overland Park, and we went out there, y'all. We went the heck out there and looked for that spook light. The wall that was built by slave labor is still there to this day. It can be viewed. And we sat there all damn night in the freaking freezing cold because we were filming through the winter, just like with the Pioneer Cemetery. These all happened week after week after week for like 11 weeks through the winter. We're up there freezing our butts off in Kansas City, outside of Kansas City, in these fields and pastures out in the prairie. Like Kansas City is like a an afterthought. You know, I keep saying Kansas City, but don't get me wrong. You're in the country, y'all. You're out there on the high plains. And we just sat there and watched this hill from the side of the road all night. And yeah, nothing happened, unfortunately. I, mean, I remember one thing. We were sitting there and there's silence for a long time. I was starting to wonder if some of the guys had fallen asleep as we were just sitting there. Because you can only talk for so long, you know. And I think it's on everyone's mind, you know. we got to start making some episodes where something happens or we're not going to get to do this anymore, you know. But anyway, I just remember the silence being broken at one point. And I don't remember who it was that said it. But somebody was like, well, maybe we should have been here on Thursday. And for whatever reason, in the moment it was said, in the context of us all freezing to death and starving and tired and ready to go back, go to sleep, it made everyone laugh really, really, really hard. Because that was the whole thing. It shows up once every seven years, but nobody says what day it shows up every seven years. Does it show up all year? We don't know. Does it show up in June? Who knows? All we know is it's supposed to show up every seven years, and it wasn't there for us, so maybe it was Thursday, and we weren't there on Thursday. But it is a cool thing to go explore an adventure for you guys. Like Kansas City's cool enough city. It's a cool place to take a trip and you can get online and Google and find out exactly where Bone Hill is. You can go check out the Bone Hill Cemetery. It's very, very cool. And you can sit there and do yourself an investigation because, by the way, I did the math to bring it up to current earlier when I was doing this research. Guess what? Next year will be the year. Another seven-year cycle is complete, and the light should be returning to hover above Bone Hill and its rock wall. Anyway, 
It's a pretty cool story. It's a pretty cool place to go. There's a lot of history there to check out. So I highly suggest you guys consider it. If you're in the area, it's something to go do. It is an adventure to go and see. And I will say this. I'll tell you one quick little anecdote because it was fun and I still feel bad about it to this day. But we were up there and I don't remember if it was the morning before the shoot, the morning after the shoot. I don't remember when we were doing our investigations and all that. But we we went to old Mickey D's, right? Trying to get breakfast. And I was up there getting me a, getting me a chicken biscuit or something, getting breakfast. And you got to keep in mind, there's like six or seven of us guys in there. Um, we all have on sh- like shirts that are branded on the back of most of the guys shirts. It actually says crew or film crew or whatever. My shirt was branded for our show because I was the host and it was like, we were on the fringe. So we had OTF, but the O was like a stylized, like Bigfoot skull type of thing. Um, anyway, we looked like a creepy paranormal friggin' podcast or not podcast, but film crew. And I'm standing up there at the counter and the lady goes to hand me my chicken biscuit. And she like leans in real close. And I was looking at her cause she was like leaning at me with this like intent look in her eyes. And she goes, are you Steve from ghost hunters? Because y'all on camera. Oh, Steve on old ghost hunters back in the day. That's how I, I looked a lot like him. I still had hair then a lot of it. It was dark. I also wore a hat all the time just like he did. I didn't do it on purpose, but we look a lot alike, dark hair, dark eyes. And I didn't have a beard back then. I just kept stubble. I just, you know, I would shave and it'd grow into stubble and it was most usually always stubble. And I looked just like him when he was on the night vision camera on ghost hunters. And I actually did look a lot like him. And she leans over and she's like, are you Steve from ghost hunters? And I'd sit there and there was this moment of decision. And I just looked her right in the eyes and I was like, yes, yes, I am. And then I signed a napkin for her as Steve. And I still feel guilty about it to this day. And I hope she never hears this podcast because I'd much rather her go on believing she met Steve than some jerkwad (laughs) who could not resist the opportunity because it was funny to him at the time. And if you are listening, just so you know, sometimes that still haunts me. Anyway, that is tonight's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad you came along for the ride, and I hope you'll come back next week, or or, yeah, week and a half from now, Friday night. It'll be dropping for your spooky weekend. I hope you will return. We're going to have some really, really good stories a week and a half from now. I'm actually about to tell them in the next two hours, but due to the magic of podcast editing and the fact that I can travel in time, technically, when we film and record this way... You will have it hot, fresh, and ready for you then. Anyway, I appreciate all of you guys who have stuck around and everyone that's coming on board right now. Excited, excited to hopefully meet some of you guys this coming weekend at the the Outdoors Expo and Rogers. You guys get out there. Hey, I've made out, I put out the call to you guys to share these podcasts into some of your, your hiking groups, your Facebook groups, you know, your paddling groups, whatever. And some of you guys did that last week or two weeks ago when I made that call out and you told me you did. And guess what? I saw a rise in downloads. Like it absolutely works. So if any of you hear an episode that you think fits somewhere, feel free to share it and you will have my eternal gratitude. If you want to get in touch, mywaywardstory at gmail.com. If you want to go find Instagram, any of my socials, waywardstories.com. And for anything other than that, 
I don't have any other resources. That was me just losing track of what I was supposed to say next. But you know what? I ain't got time for all that editing and stuff. So we're going to leave it in. We can't all be perfect all the time. Thank you guys for listening tonight. And I will catch you guys in the next episode. Until then, you guys be good to each other.